0: Good morning. I'm like, I'm like with, I'm a little with Cliff, so God bless you for being here this morning. <laughs> this is, um, yeah, just a little different to get up and see not quite so many are here, but um, um, certainly we can worship together and learn from God's Word together. We'd like to look at the book of Revelation again this morning and uh, the message. Um, looking at uh, chapter two and the passage that Paul read here, it would be the text for a message here this morning. There's just a number of things that, that have come through uh, as I thought about um, the life of Jesus as I've thought about um, even our Christian lives in connection with that, you know. So we see in the book of Revelation um, uh, a Jesus that is very different from the Gospels. In the Gospels, we have Jesus as the Lamb. We have Jesus as the carpenter from Nazareth. We have Jesus as the perfect Son of God, we have Jesus um, doing the will of the Father. But now in Revelation, we see a, a very, very different person coming through, and not, not different in the sense that it's a, a, a distinctly different person, but uh, he works very differently. Jesus works very differently in Revelation. And so as John was taking this message from uh, Jesus, Think about Jesus as, uh, as described here uh, in uh, chapter 1, verses 13, uh, maybe 13, 14, and 15. It says, In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire, his feet were like unto fine brass, as if they had been burned in the furnace, and his voice was as the sound of many waters. Uh, Verse 16, a sharp two-edged sword from his mouth. We don't find Jesus described in the Gospels like this. Certainly Jesus was perfect in the Gospels, and this is really the same person, but there's a different aspect of Jesus' life and ministry that comes through in the book of Revelation. Um, I I have concluded that if you want to really, if you want to get an accurate study or make an accurate, or have an, or you want an accurate picture of Jesus' life and ministry, you should also include Revelation in that. Because what we have in the Gospels on the life of Jesus is not complete. We see a different... Person coming through in Revelation, and um, for us to, um, and and I think sometimes we kind of miss that part of Jesus' life and ministry today when we uh, when we focus on the Gospels. And certainly, the Gospels give us an example of how we should live as we follow Jesus' life. The Gospels give us an example of how we should live as Christians. We imitate, we follow the life of Jesus as we find it in the Gospels. But there's a, an aspect of Jesus' life and ministry that comes through in Revelation that we will see someday in the future. And um, even in the Gospels and the writings of, of, of the Paul and the, uh, the writings in the New Testament, The writers many, many times refer to this part of Jesus' life also, of his ministry, this future uh, life of Jesus as being King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus as being Messiah, uh, who's coming back to judge, who's coming back to make everything right on the earth, who's coming back to have total control of everything that takes place on the earth. And so we we find that aspect of Jesus' life. And so, a study of Jesus' life is incomplete if we don't part, if we don't also include Jesus in the in the book of Revelation as we find him there. As we go through these uh, seven churches, I'm not going to be spending as much time on the other churches as I do. Uh, On the Church of Ephesus, and so we 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 know more about Ephesus than we do some of the other churches. The Book of Ephesus, or the the city of Ephesus, was on uh, probably on uh, Paul's both second and third missionary journey, and so we know more about this city than some of the other cities. Um, I find it easier, maybe a little easier, to also to connect with with what is said about Ephesus than some of the other cities. So. Uh, some of the other cities were in the middle of the Roman Empire and the the priests and all that, and so we find it a little hard uh, to connect with some of that. But um, the city of Ephesus was a um, a church that I think we can uh, relate to and connect with maybe a little better than the others. So I want to spend my time this morning on the city of Ephesus. If we go to chapter uh, Revelation chapter one verse three, uh, it says, "Blessed are they, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and I think the seven churches, as we see them here in Revelation chapter two and three, are also uh, part of the prophetic message that God is sending to the churches, and to us, and to us also. And so I think there is room, there is room in that context to also think about these seven churches as also being somewhat prophetic of, of um, eras of church history. And so I think, I don't want to make. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but I, I, I do want to maybe just kind of introduce that um, this morning and uh, think about that a little bit because it does help us. It does help us understand why. Um, why some of the things were written to some of the churches that were, that were written, and so, uh, and I think, you know, so we see. Revelation is being a prophetic book, and I don't think we're taking it out of context by looking at the churches in a prophetic kind of way so um, let me just run through this and uh, you can think about it and and uh, and again the Bible does not specifically give this as part of the interpretation of the seven churches, but we do have the words of the prophecy in this uh, in revelation and so I think this is also um, at least uh, prophetic in nature. The Church of Ephesus then was probably the church that existed, it started at the time of uh, Pentecost. The Church of Ephesus would have started at the time of Pentecost and continued for uh, for about 100 or 150 years after Pentecost. And so when we look at the Church of Ephesus, we're looking at the very beginning of church history. The very beginning, the first hundred years or so of church history, and so um, uh, this kind of gives us um, kind of gives us a um, context for what we see there. The church at Smyrna, which is the second church that is mentioned, then is the persecuted church, and we find that church then to be existing from about 8150 uh, or so until the time of Constantine. And during that time, we'd have had, we would have had the, uh, what some historians would have said, the ten, the ten major persecutions of the church, and so we had various um, Roman um, Roman emperors that would have persecuted Christians during that time, and the Christians, uh, the persecution was not always empire wide. Sometimes it was uh, in in regions, um, the the persecution from Nero would have been primarily in Rome, but then there were some emperors later that would have had um, nationwide, across the whole Roman Empire, there would have been persecution. And so Smyrna is then the persecuted church, and we can easily fit that in, and then we can look at um, what is said about the Church of Smyrna and fit that into that church period. It's interesting interesting to me that the church of Smyrna and also the church of Philadelphia were two churches where Jesus had nothing negative to say about them. So the persecuted church of Smyrna was, it was probably not a perfect church, but they, uh, Jesus didn't have anything negative to say about them, but they would have existed from about the time of AD 200 to about 300. The church at Pergamos then was, the beginning of the union of church and state uh, as we have it under Constantine. And um, and then we have the beginning of the priesthood and also um, moral corruption that had taken place in that. The church at Thyatira, we have more written about that church, um, probably more negative things written about that church than any other. Uh, we have a, quite a number of verses that uh, address the Church of Thyatira. And we have here at the height, in this church, we have the height of Roman hierarchy. Um, And uh, the priesthood has been established and there's lots of corruption in the priesthood. And and so this would take us through the Dark Ages up until about the time of the Reformation. I find it interesting that the Roman Catholic Church during that time would have represented would have represented Christianity not in a very accurate kind of way, but they represented Christianity to the people at that time and uh, we have uh, lots of uh, negative things written about that and I believe that the the um, the inaccurate the inaccurate representation of Christianity was um, something that really, really, um, um, how, how should I describe it? It's, it sparks a pretty sharp response from God. When Christianity is not represented properly, we have that done in the Roman Catholic Church. We also have that done in the time of Jesus with the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus had some... some um, Pretty harsh things to say about the scribes and the Pharisees. The Church of Sardis then represents the Reformation period. Uh, the Reformation certainly wasn't perfect, and here in the Reformation, it says, uh, in in addressing this church, then God, uh, Jesus says, there are a few names, there are a few people during this time that have that were faithful, but primarily the Reformation period was not seen as being a real, real positive. Uh, Period uh, by Jesus in um, in church history, the church at Philadelphia. Then we have the open door. The church at Philadelphia had the open door, and the church at Philadelphia was the was the evangelistic church. A period of intense evangelism, world evangelism. Uh, we have um, we have some um, evangelism taking place in Europe, and we have it in. Uh, In the United States, uh, during the time of Wesley and Whitfield, uh, evangelism took place there. Um, uh, Lots of uh, turning back to God through that. And then also the evangelism, worldwide evangelism took place. And then the church at Laodicea, I believe, would represent the church as we see it today, a lukewarm church, uh, deception, apostasy, a part of the church. and. and so, um, again, representing seven periods of church history. And so if you read that, if you read what is written to the churches and you think about that representing church, uh, periods of church history, it, ma- it helps us make uh, sense of what he's saying to those churches. This morning, then, we would like to focus on the church of Ephesus. And in verse 1, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, uh, some people have um, interpreted the word angel as being, as being a church leader or the bishop of this church. Uh, as, you look at, uh, as you look at scripture and you look at uh, how uh, the bishops and elders and so on are, uh, are addressed in the church, I don't think that the word angel is properly interpreted as a being a bishop. I believe the word angel is an angel, as we think about it, as a ministering spirit. And so you think about this ministering spirit being one who sends the message to the church. And uh, an angel, as we would think about it uh, today. And uh, so we have this angel representing the church. Uh, Verse 2, it says, I know thy works. I know thy works. Uh, Jesus was very familiar with what was happening in the Church of Ephesus. He was very familiar with that. Um, there, there is that line of thought that would say that every church has its angel. Um, and so, um, so does the church at Peckway. do we have an angel that is watching over us? Um, it's something to think about. We don't find that necessarily... Addressed in Scripture, but we do find the angels um, connected to each one of these seven churches here in the in the Book of Revelation, and uh, and I believe the the fact that God knows what was taking place, God knew what was taking place in the Book of uh, with with the Church at Ephesus is also um, is also a part of God as He relates to churches today. And so you think about, you think about that. And so, you know, we go into our men's meeting on Wednesday night and we're looking at, you know, outreach and the use of the alms fund and so on. And here we know, we know that Jesus knows about us. We know that Jesus is knowing about the decisions that we're gonna make at the men's meeting. I find that to be really, really interesting, and um, and so it is important for us. It is important for us to align ourselves with God's word as we make those decisions, and be able to you know work together as as a congregation in making those decisions. Um, I was going to bring this up a little later in the in the message, but let me just bring it up now. Um, For for a number of the churches, one of the negative things that was brought against the church was the fact the church was allowing uh, people in the church to eat meat that was offered to idols. They were allowing the people in the church that the church was allowed to eat meat that was offered to idols. And that was, that was given as a negative thing in the churches, in, in, a, in several of the churches. That, that, uh, that idea of not eating meat offered to idols goes back to a decision that was made at the Jerusalem Council in, Act, in Acts chapter 15 between Paul's first and second missionary journey. And there's really, and I need to be careful how I say this, there's really nothing in the, in, in the, in the Old Testament law that would, that would keep someone from doing that. This was the this was decision that was made as the apostles and elders came together and they were looking at what is going to be required of the Gentiles and what was, you know, so, and but the decision that was made there is held in the book of Revelation as God is evaluating churches like thousands of years later. And so decisions that are made, and I'm not saying our men's meeting decisions on Wednesday night are going to be you know, we're going to be held to that in a a thousand years from now, but I'm saying, but I am saying that decisions that are made as a group, as a people, in in a consensus kind of form is important. Those decisions are important. And if you want to be a part of a group of people, those decisions are important for you. And not to be taken lightly. And so, the church here, um, the church here at Ephesus. Then we have um, a number of things coming through. Let me just do a little bit of um, of history on this church first. Um, we have the. Church first mentioned in Acts 18, verse 19, verse, and also verse 21, and, it, and, it would, and it, it's in the context of Paul traveling home on his, on his second missionary journey, and it looks like, according to those verses, he stops, he makes a brief stop at Ephesus, uh, teaches there, maybe one Sunday or one day um, there, he teaches. And then, and then leaves again. And then when on his third missionary journey, Paul spends uh, quite a bit of time at the church of Ephesus and, uh, and is able to connect uh, well with that and uh, establish a church there. Ephesus was a seaport city. Uh, we find that many, of, most of Paul's churches and most of the cities that Paul visited were seaport cities. Paul grew up in the city of Tarsus. He grew up in a a seaport city. Paul also grew up in a seaport city. And I know, you know, God calls us to many different places of evangelism and ministry and so on. And I don't want to in any way uh, put anything negative on, you know, having us move to the cities and so on. But the bottom line is this, that we tend to relate best to where where we were brought up. And so Paul was brought up, he grew up in the city of Tarsus, a seaport city, Uh, lots and lots of visitors, uh, travelers, tourism in a a seaport city, and uh, lots of activities, lots of commerce, most most seaport cities were uh, economically, they were, you know, financially they were in good shape, and there was lots of trade and so on, prosperous kind of cities. And so when Paul went on his missionary journeys, he went to places that he was very familiar with and also established churches in, in lots of seaport cities. And Ephesus would have been one of those. It was probably located about 50 miles northeast of Patmos where um, Paul, uh, not Paul, John was stranded on the Isle of Patmos. He had no way of getting off. Uh, Rocky Island, uh, a place where they would put Criminals and you would live there for. Sometimes criminals wouldn't live wouldn't live for more than a few days on the island, so you're surrounded by salt water. You're surrounded by salt water. Uh, you start drinking salt water as you know you're not going to live long with uh, salt water. Uh, wild animals on the island and so on, and uh, they it was a place where they would put uh, prisoners. Um, this city would have been the closest to where, where John was living, and it was also a city that was very close, I believe, very close to John's heart. John would have lived at Ephesus before his exile, after his exile he went back to Ephesus again and uh, would have considered that kind of his home, um, his hometown, his home city. <laughs> If you go into the book of Acts, you will also find Ephesus was uh, was uh, the the home of the temple to Diana. It was home to the of the temple to Diana. This temple was considered at that time considered one of the seven wonders of the world. A huge, a huge, magnificent kind of building, and um, Ephesus. Um, was home to that and idol worship was very, very rampant in the city of uh, Ephesus. Um, the word, and this is interesting, every, every um, city that is mentioned here in the seven churches, uh, every city that is mentioned here, the word, uh, the meaning of the word goes along with, with uh, what was happening in the church. And so the word Ephesus means to let go or to change. It means to let go or to change. And so you think about uh, God's or Jesus' critique of Ephesus as having left their first love. And so they let go of something or they changed. They left go of something that um, that they had. Paul uh, says he disputed there in, the, in some kind of a school for several years. It was also in Ephesus where they had the bonfire, and they burned a lot of books. They burned a lot of books. Uh, Paul met the elders there on the third missionary journey. Uh, It's also the place where we have the seven sons of Sceva who tried to imitate what Paul was doing, and the demons um, hurt them, uh, beat them, and so on. If you look at the book of, of, uh, if you look at what is said here about the church at Ephesus, and I'd like to read, I'd like to read verses two and three and five. Two and three and six. I'd like to read verses two and three and six. And you think about what is said here about this church and how the church is described. It says, I know thy works, thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which also I hate. When you look at that description of the church of Ephesus, you would say this church was almost a perfect church. You would say this church was almost a perfect church. What would you want to change in those three verses that would better describe or make the church better? What would you change in there? These people had it. It looks like these people had it all together. But then you read verses 4 and 5, and it says, Nevertheless, I have someone against thee. Because thou hast left thy first love, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Or else I will come quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Here's, here's, my, here's my take on the Ephesian church. And so, we have the church at Ephesus beginning at Pentecost they continued for a number of years and I'm I'm thinking that when John wrote this he was probably looking at second and third generation Christians from the time of Pentecost he was probably looking at second and third generation Christians and then we we see that in verse four it says they left their first love it doesn't say they lost it, it says they left it now most christians don't backslide because they've decided to backslide most christians don't backslide because you know they say oh in a week from now i'm going to backslide But. We tend to backslide and apostatize because of decisions that are made, which result, and it's kind of a, yeah, it's, it's kind of a um, result kind of thing. Um, so we backslide because of decisions that are made, and, and that is one of the consequences of that. It, it, it would look to me as though the, the, the church at Ephesus was a church that had, they were established on, at the time of Pentecost, they put things in place, uh, they put some things in place, and you can go through the book of Acts, and and you see the early church, how they operated, they put deacons in place, and they had ordained elders, and so on, And they, and there's also some, ideas coming through on the kind of worship services they had and so on. And so here we have this church and then about a 100 years later, they were just kind of handed some of these things. Maybe another generation came along, maybe the second or third generation came along, they were handed some of these things and, and the church was operating a little like a machine. So they had been given a lot of good things And they were operating kind of like a machine, Um, you know. So on the farm I have lots of machines, machinery, tractors, and so on. And so, you know, sometimes farmers get a little nostalgic about their equipment and their tractors, especially if they have some old stuff and so on. But guess what? The equipment doesn't have any kind of feeling for the farmer. The, The equipment doesn't have any kind of feeling for the farmer. The equipment does the job, it does everything right, it does just what you want it to, but there's no feeling. I find it interesting that in the book of, um, in the book of, of Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, we have, okay, here we have in verse 2, it says, I know thy works, I know thy labor, and I know thy patience. That's great to have those. In the book of um, in the book of of First Thessalonians, we have those three ideas addressed also, and Paul is commending the Thessalonian church for what they're doing. But guess what? It's labor of love. It's patience of hope, perseverance of hope, and it's. Um, you know and so there's there's faith hope and love connected with what they were doing in thessalonians we find that missing in the church of ephesus they were doing the works they were doing the perseverance and they were they were doing the works the labor the perseverance but they missed faith, hope, and love. Um, we, we, and you think about have the church having left, not lost, their first love. The church has left their first love, not lost it. They're missing faith, hope, and love. They're like my tractor that doesn't have any nostalgic feelings toward me. He just does what, I, what he's programmed to do. And I believe we have a church here that was going through the, all, all the mechanics of good church life, but without without the feelings. I know Christianity isn't based on feelings, but... And, and so, don't... Don't go away from here this morning thinking that, you know, feelings are everything. They're not. But when you think of, when you think of the marriage supper of the Lamb, as we have it described there in, in Revelation chapter 19, you think of the marriage supper of the Lamb, and you think about God's people gathering from all parts of the earth to participate in this marriage supper of the Lamb, this celebration is a celebration of love. And we do well if we, want to, if we want to be, you know, different from the church of Ephesus, having left their first love. If we want to do well as a church, we need to cultivate a love for Jesus. And that's really what sets Christianity apart from other religions, a love for Jesus, a love for the one who started the church. You wanna see what it takes to fall in love? Watch a young couple start dating. They don't fall in love by spending a lot of time away from each other. They, spend, they fall in love by spending time with each other. They're talking. They're communicating. They're sharing. Lots of feelings, right? Lots of feelings. Apostasy, as we have it in the New Testament, is a departing from something and i think it's an, it's safe to say that the church of ephesus here had apostatized they had departed from something that they had earlier and uh, the church was started with everything you know with the faith hope and love but they departed from that hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 talks about departing from the living god 1st thessalonians 4:1 talks about departing from the faith I'm a little, just a, um, um, I know here a few weeks back, Floyd um, had noted uh, something that was found in the sword and trumpet. Just a, a, a short paragraph here that I'd like to read. It says the subtlety of apostasy was seen in the beautiful garden several thousand years ago. As one writer stated, the fall of human of humankind through the disobedience of Adam and Eve has set us on a trajectory on a trajector, trajectory that makes it predictable where our intellectual and psychological and spiritual and spiritual intuit, will take us. Apostasy is a relentless opponent. Is that correct? Apostasy affects more than just the church. Sometimes, it, I mean, these things affect other organizations, schools and uh, missions and so on, you know. So you get into something and then, and then it, it's hard to maintain what you've, what you've started. I'd like to ask this question. I'd like to ask this question. Does God provide everything we need today to keep us from leaving our first love in times of prosperity? Or do we have to wish for hard times for better spiritual life? It is, I believe, it is a, I believe it is a trick of Satan to make us feel like we don't have the ideal conditions for, 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 um, for a good spiritual life. We have, we have numerous examples of men in recent history who have done very well during times of prosperity, and in their Christian lives who have done very well during times of prosperity and have have been able to maintain a vital, vibrant Christian life. And I believe it is well for us to think about some of those men and look at them and read some of those biographies and see what they did. Because prosperity and life of ease as we have it today tends to be not conducive to Biblical, spiritual Christianity. It is the church at Smyrna that was, they were, they existed during times of severe persecution. God doesn't have anything bad to say about them. But let's think about the church of Philadelphia, who were just about 100 or 200 years ago. They existed during a time of prosperity, but they took, they, they use the open door. They use the open door. And uh, God doesn't have anything negative to say about them either. Just a few comments yet. Um, we have the, the Nicolaitans uh, coming through in this passage also, verse 6. Thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which also I hate. And uh, if you do some research on that, you come up with all kinds of ideas about who the Nicolaitans may have been. And so my research didn't help me a lot. Uh, One, um, I'm using using a a book on uh, a commentary on Revelation by J.B. Smith, J.B. Smith was a Mennonite uh, a number of years ago, wrote a book, and then later, um, and died before his book was published, and then later J. J. Otis Yoder finished the book, made some comments, and and as those noted with his initials and so on, finished the book and had it published. And so I'm using that book some as I go through Revelation. But um, J.B. Smith says that uh, the Nicolaitans, if you look at the word, it can give you maybe some insight into who they were. Uh, The first part of the word, of the word Nicolaitans has to do with conquering, has to do with conquering. The last part of the word uh, Nicolaitans, laos, is where we get our word laity. And J.B. Smith's observation would have been that the Nicolaitans were people who, and he may have been actually thinking about the Roman Catholic uh, priesthood, they were people who were conquering the laity. Uh, also coming through in, in, in numerous other um, uh, comments that people were making, these Nicolaitans also would have allowed some immorality. Uh, perhaps uh, even bordering kind of on the Gnostic kind of idea of uh, Christianity. The Gnostics would have said that what you do with your body doesn't matter, it's what you do with your spirit and your soul that really matters. And so you can do with your body what you want to, and so if you get involved in, in immorality, it's not a deal. And the Nicolaitans would have maybe bought into some of that idea, some with their immoral uh, ideas on, um, on for instance, uh, fornication, they would have allowed that. And so these people were, um, in some cases, were allowed to exist in the church. And, but here at Ephesus, they, uh, they would have uh, taken a stand against the Nicolaitans. Um, and so, um, John would have uh, addressed somebody that could have fit into that category in 3 John, verse 9, uh, a man by the name of uh, Diotrephes, and a comment on him was that he loveth to have the preeminence. He loveth to have the preeminence. So here was a man that could have fit into that Nicolaitan category, someone who was a church leader, he liked his position as a church leader and was taking advantage of it and, uh, and was uh, using it um, uh, to conquer the people or the laity. The word overcome comes through, it comes through in the New Testament 24 times, but it comes through in Revelation. Twenty times, the writer of the book of Revelation was was interested in having us get this information and use this to overcome. He's not talking about overcoming death because, in um, in Revelation chapter twelve verse eleven, it talks about a group of martyrs, and it uh, these martyrs, it says, overcame by the blood of the lamb. They were put to death, but they overcame by the blood of the lamb. Think about Jesus' life. Did Jesus overcome death? Did Jesus overcome death? He did it through death, right? He did it through death. And so the, the idea of overcoming is being able to live above the wiles of Satan, to live above the consequences of death and so on. I believe that even in a time of freedom and prosperity, God has provided everything we need to keep our first love for Jesus. We don't live in a time of of spiritual disadvantage because, because we're living in a time of prosperity. God has given us resources today, freedoms and and material things and money like no other church like no other group of people has ever seen in the time of church history from the time of Pentecost there's been nobody there's been no group of people that have the freedoms and the resources that we have today in church history not as a, as a large group and I believe God is calling us to be faithful in that The works, the labor, the patience is great, but we need a labor of love, the patience of hope, a work of faith, and I believe God will bless us in that. Let's kneel together for prayer.